Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, creepy clowns on the small and silver screens, movie remakes with all-women casts, and this year's best and worst Halloween costume trends, the latest pop culture news. Later in the show, we all know Boston has a rich history displayed in museums and honored in many historic landmarks. But what about the city's stories of grisly murders and the true crime events? Some really gruesome, gory, meaty, murder, and macabre stories. We say that, you know, they're all historically true. We're like the freedom trail from hell. Two Boston ghost tour guides give us an inside look at their spooky business. But first, joining me in the studio, Michael Jeffries, Associate Professor of American Studies at Wellesley College. Hello, Michael. Hi, Kelly. And Rachel Rubin, Professor of American Studies at University of Massachusetts, Boston. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Callie. Glad to have you both. There's a lot going on. Let's jump right in with horror movies. They are everywhere and beating all movies at the box office, engaging all kinds of audiences. It's really quite the phenomenon. So I wonder just first off, before I get to some of the details that people may be surprised to know about just how popular they are, what you all think about this increased trend in horror. Rachel. Well, it, it's interesting because there are different moments when horror movies have become very historically useful and there have been these booms. So, for instance, there was definitely a boom during the atomic fear period, right, where there were like invasions of deformed creatures. There was definitely a horror movie boom during the Vietnam War. The slasher movie came in, so it's like teenagers start dying. Another one in the the 80s, there was like a burst of vampire, you know, movies and television shows and so forth focus on blood, right, during the AIDS crisis. So right now we are definitely in another moment, right, where people are finding horror movies useful to process something. And it's hard to know what that something is when you're in it. So it's very interesting right now to sort of like think, huh, what are we using horror movies socially to process together? I don't think I realize how much mirroring was happening in those very specific movies. Michael, your take. Yeah, there are also some industry dynamics that explain the recent popularity. I mean, in some sense, it's a very easy calculus in terms of return on investment for the film companies that are producing these films. Relatively speaking, they can be cheaper to make, but they can have a massive profit at the end of it. They're movies that you can make a sequel off of because these are characters that even if they're new characters, people want to see more of them. And often, these movies are remakes themselves of previous characters or older stories. So there's a built-in fan base and a built-in thirst to repeat the characters and repeat the film. So in terms of the initial investment, it's very low. They know there's a fan base there. They know the movie's not going to take that long to make. So at a time when the film and television business is in a bit of turmoil, it's a smart decision for many of these executives to go forward. Well, speaking of repeat, that's the theme of Happy Death Day. People may think of it as a kind of a horror groundhog day where this young woman keeps experiencing her own death over and over. Let's listen to a clip. You scared me. 
Yeah. Look, I know this isn't gonna make any sense. Stop global warming. Hey. I feel like I'm losing my mind. Happy birthday. I've already lived through this day. Somebody's gonna kill me what I think is very interesting about it is uh, all the use of the music and it's fast paced. 61% of the audience of the, for this movie was under 25 in the opening weekend, which made about $26 million. People were very excited about how many young people were in the theater because they don't come to the theater anymore. They look at their own small screen. So what do you think was happening here? Well, that, that is very interesting. I mean, one thing about horror movies that is worth noting is that there is a sort of collective viewing culture. So if you go to a horror movie, the audience will scream things at the screen, you know, advice to characters, insults to characters, right? So there is sort of more of a—if young people are going to go to the movies when they are— a little bit upsettingly trained to stare at their own screens, it makes sense that it would be a horror movie because it, mm. is, it isn't something that, like, it, it's a whole different experience watching yeah. it at home. A and alone, I guess. Yes. Mm -hmm. Michael? Another kind of theory about this is that there aren't that many movies that are targeted for a very specific age range of a young person who's old enough not to want to watch Disney movies, but maybe not quite old enough to watch R-rated movies right by themselves. So these movies have kind of taken the place of some coming-of-age movies that we used to have during previous eras. There aren't as many Ferris Bueller Day Off or Back to the Future-type franchises these days, in part because those movies are like big-budget sci-fi thrillers that, again, require a massive investment. But if you can make a different sort of movie with the same target audience for less money and kind of give them space to be scared and engage with some more frightening, edgy topics as an audience, uh, that can be a useful, a useful way to go. I would never go see any of this, but I'm fascinated that the top grossing film right now is It, featuring the very, very creepy clown Pennywise. It's made $651 million to date, and it keeps growing. This was based on a book by Stephen King, and a lot of people feel that it has some political overtones. First, I want to play a clip from the movie. This is the scene in which the audience is introduced to Pennywise. Georgie, what a nice pony. Do you want it back? Um, yes, please. You look like a nice boy. Do you want a balloon to it, Georgie? I'm not supposed to take stuff from strangers. Oh, well, I'm Pennywise the dancing clown. Now we aren't strangers, are we? It just creeps me out. So now I want to play a clip from Kelly Wise, which was a Saturday Night Live skit parroting it and Kellyanne Conway. Hi, you creepy. <laughs> it's me, Kellyanne Conway. <laughs> but you can call me Kelly Wise. Kelly Wise, the dancing clown. <laughs> it's Kellyanne. What'd you do to your makeup? I turned it down. Put me on TV. I have to go. Wait, uh, don't go. Don't you want a quote? No. I'll give you a quote. I'll give you a crazy, crazy quote. How about this? Okay, so Puerto Rico actually was worse before Hurricane Maria, and the hurricane actually did blow some buildings back together. And I don't know why Elizabeth Warren won't tweet about that. So 
King himself, again, this is based on his book, uh, acknowledged that this was very much a parallel to, you know, political stuff. And he said, we just elected Pennywise president. What do you think? Political commenting, commentary? Well, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I mean, Stephen King, by the way, has been consistent about this throughout. He says, for instance, that he wrote Carrie because it was like at the start of the women's rights movement of the 70s and he was raised by a single mother and he was sort of showing the power of women. And so absolutely, I mean, and I, again, sort of to go back to this is how people process political things. That's why I don't didn't exactly love the Saturday night, you know, live thing. And neither. I just like weird. Well, it's weird, but it also <laughs> like literalizes what culture does mm-hmm. symbolically. So, you know, and the evil clown thing has a very long history, like going back at least to the 19th century in Pagliacci. So it's interesting that he is sort of pulling on a very familiar figure and sort of imbuing it with current relevance. A lot of clowns, by the way, Michael, I just should say, have, have come out and said, you know, this is really offensive to them because they're supposed to be happy. And, and actually, they've had to change their whole personal appearances because of the impact of this movie. Yeah, it's become a, it's become a real reference point. And the, the life that it has in popular culture now is stunning to think about when you think just how long ago it was that the book was written. I think one of the salient things about this particular character and this story, though, is the way it plays on people's desires and the way it uses our desires against us as a form of weakness. And I think that's part of what the appeal is here, is kind of work through that conundrum and that problem that we have as, as human beings, really, is we allow our desires to seduce us and do things and be people that we should not be and do things we should not do. And I think that's kind of the resonance of the movie in, in this particular moment. Well, it's still building an audience and they're making a lot, a lot of money. They won't get my money, but they're going to get a lot of other money. Do you see, foresee a time when horror is just doesn't draw like it's drawing now or are we in the period now for a while? Oh, we've been in it for a while, a long time, and we're still in it. Okay. Let's talk about what could be horrible, and that's uh, Halloween costumes. I always hold my breath during this season that people are going to go there in some crazy way. Right now, though, what's interesting is that there are a number of costumes that seem to be mirroring all of the stuff that's out here that's not clowns or horror. So, for example, people are doing handmaid's costumes and Wonder Women, of course. But Sean Spicer and Friends, that was a new one for me. Big Little Lies, which people may know was an HBO special about domestic abuse. Pregnant Kardashians is a winner this year. And more oddly, giraffes and the poop emoji. Okay, so work with that, people. What do you? What, what is that saying to us? Yeah, so I think with respect to the costumes that are based on political culture and political figures, it's an easy time to see why those are going to become popular because our political moment at the time is one that's prone to exaggeration, being driven by exaggeration and deceit and embellishment. And so many of the characters are larger-than-life characters for better and wor- or worse. So there are so many possibilities for riffing and exaggerating on those traits. What you have to worry about, though, is that some people don't understand that the the depth of the joke and the depth of the possible damage and insult that many of these characters that are laughable in pop cultural terms, but politically are actually quite damaging and toxic. Mm. So I think that's kind of the balance that people are going to have to worry about striking this Halloween is I understand you're trying to make fun of something, but at what point does it become overdone, insensitive, et cetera? Mm. Rachel? 
Well, again, I'm always interested in what people are willing to talk about when it comes to costumes. And obviously, each year there's been, you know, a college campus where somebody puts on blackface and Mm -hmm. there's a scandal and so forth. And this year, Amazon is selling a costume for a child that is of a child being sent to a camp in World War II. Oh, my God. With a number. Oh, hanging. my God. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. That wouldn't be the word I'd use, but okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and people mm. are writing comments, and it's mm. one of those things where you, it makes it sort of literal that these things host conversations. Mm. But the one thing that I don't see people talk about enough is people sort of joking representations of poverty at Halloween, mm-hmm. you know. And so there's there's a person in my neighborhood who every year puts on a quote, hillbilly, unquote, costume, including, like, what they sell as hillbilly teeth. And I want to go, oh, because it's so funny when people don't have access to medical care, Mm -hmm. you know, and so Mm -hmm. on. So, I mean, I guess, as I said, the positive side is it does host some very productive conversations. But I absolutely agree with Michael that, you know, sometimes people don't realize about lines they're crossing. And I think one thing that's very interesting about Halloween costumes that, you know, I've just sort of been thinking about this is when you dress up as someone for Halloween, what you're really doing is demonstrating your difference right. from that person, not any kind of similarity. They're the other, and I'm just making They're that clear. They're the other, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you're putting it on to show that you can take it off or something like that. I'm actually surprised. Thankfully, I haven't heard it yet that there weren't some, well, let's let's uh, re-envision the guys carrying the torches in Charlottesville. I have been holding my breath on that, that people would not get that that's important. But when you look mm-hmm. at that march, it's, mm-hmm. it's really interesting to see the ways that dress and costume played out mm-hmm. under those circumstances. Because you had people dressing up as if they were Donald Trump, right? You had people mm-hmm. wearing the khakis and the golf shirt and the hat. So you can already see the role that costume plays in reenacting some of this racial drama and racial trauma. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Rachel Rubin, professor of American Studies at UMass Boston, and Michael Jeffries, associate professor of American Studies at Wellesley College. We're discussing the latest pop culture news. All right, so what really is exciting, the release of the Black Panther trailer. (laughs) We're all waiting. It's coming next year. I mean, beyond the latest uh, Star Wars iteration, that's the next big thing. And I'm just wondering how you all are hearing it about the excitement. And I want to talk about some of the changes they've made to one of the villains just to bring it home, I guess, into these days and times and be culturally appropriate. Because much has been written about the involvement of Atanahisi Coates and the writing of the comic and other writers to really try to reflect what's happening now so that T'Challa, who is played by Chadwick Boseman, the Black Panther, who comes from the country called Wakanda, is really of these times. So first, let me just get your response to what we know. We don't know everything, but what we know about what may be coming in the movie. I mean, people are universal. Everyone I've talked to is sort of universally excited about it. It's actually part of what I think is a much larger trend in sort of comic nerddom, right? Where, again, in part driven by the return on investment for idea for these film companies. They know there's a fan base that's going to go see these films and that they're a group of hardcore fans. But I think in this case, people are taking the study of comic books and comic nerddom quite seriously, both in the Academy and also cultural writers for publications like Coates' The Atlantic and other such things. So there's a real hunger among cultural critics students, young consumers, for not only the entertainment of the film, but the cultural analysis of the film. And it gives it a life beyond whatever it does at the box office. People are viewing this as a cultural event the same way they view the Star Wars movies. Rachel? I think that's true. And I think another thing, I mean, I I appreciate the comic 
nerddom reference because, you know, that's a sort of familiar scene to me. But I also think that comic fandom has really expanded. It's much broader and it gets much more attention. And, you know, Comic-Con used to be this small group of people who went, right, and now at Disney comes. So I think that that, in fact, has sort of forced more attention onto these issues. I would absolutely agree because I am so far from never read a comic. Maybe I did a long time ago, but just not at all interested. And Marvel has drawn me to the theater with some of the blockbusters. But this one I'm really, really waiting for. So let's take listen to a clip. Now, this is T'Challa's mother. Again, that's the Black Panther played by Chadwick Boseman, who I should mention right now is in the lead role in a film called Marshall. And T'Challa's mother in this movie is played by Angela Bassett. And there are members of the Wakandan all-female special forces, and they are speaking to T'Challa, a.k.a. Black Panther. My son, it is your time. You get to decide what kind of king you are going to be. Don't freeze. I never freeze. Okay. The revolution will not be televised. I know many people might not catch that. At the end of this clip, I'm like, okay, what's happening here? <laughs> My mind's in a twirl. <laughs> Michael, you're smiling. <laughs> yeah, and some of these themes are themes that we've heard before in other movies. This idea of, you know, heavy is the head that wears the crown. This is a kind of trope that we see in these kinds of coming-of-age stories about young kings and queens and so on. But, of course, the representation of blackness in this film is so far away from what we're used to seeing in big-budget blockbusters grounded in black action figures, right? In particular, the uh, notion of technological advancement, the way the society is organized, the degree of diversity among Wakandans, let alone all the other folks in the movie. These are the driving themes in the movie, in addition to the visual explosion and the aesthetic roots of some of the costumes and the structures that we're going to see in the film. So it's an incredible moment in terms of black cultural production at a time when black cultural production and representations of blackness are under siege for all sorts of reasons. Mm-hmm. Rachel? Well, I, I would like to sort of comment on what Michael just said, because I think it's a very useful lesson, which is it's a movie made from comics, mm-hmm. right? And he was just saying, wow, it's more realistic than most movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Here's another tidbit about the movie. So one of the villains of the Black Panther is Man-Ape. That's the original villain. And it's a Wakandan man named M'Baku. They have gone through a lot because originally a Man-Ape would be played by a black person in a gorilla suit. Now, for all kinds of reasons, that's just really not going to fly in terms of the kind of racist images that have been used with black people and gorillas and all that. So they have reworked how M'Baku will be represented. He's still a villain, and he will have a costume, back to your piece about costumes, that has some hints of being a part of this gorilla nation, but not a gorilla costume. And what he represents in the movie has been appropriate for these times. 
And I think that's amazing. It just shows what you can do if you're paying attention. No question. And, yeah. and the framework for that sort of complexity is actually laid by the, some of the original stories in, in Black Panther. This, the, the plot of the comic is such that this is not a standalone villain. He's a representative of a sect of Wakandan society that has a different set of political interests and goals, uh, an evil <laughs> set yeah. of political for Wakanda. So in that way, it, it is already a step removed from some of the most vicious and disgusting stereotypes of blackness because it's not just the kind of one-off stereotypical character of sort of hyper-masculine, hyper-aggressive blackness, there's a much deeper sense of strategy and political aim that's embedded in that character and what he represents. All right, so where we are not having any creativity, it appears, is the remakes on a couple of uh, films. They were films that featured all men, and now they have done stunt casting with all women. One of the films is a remake of The Lord of the Flies. People may know that that's the 1954 novel. And then there was a film by Peter Brook, which is about a group of young boys put on an island and it all turns to horribleness as they are left there alone trying to figure out how to survive. The other film is Ocean's 8 being recast as all-female. So the question is, it's not so much we've talked about all-female cast before, but these are just remakes of other movies. We're not moving to originality in any way. And also, as many people have written with regard to Lord of the Flies, that movie alone is just completely changed uh, with an all-female cast. By the way, the movie is written by men, all-female cast, Lord of the Flies, written by men. But here's what one online poster said about how ridiculous this is. Girls get marooned on an island, band together to find food, shelter, rescue, nobody dies, the end. That, she said, would be the female version of Lord of the Flies, which, as we know, is quite different from the original. So jump in. Tell me. you know, (laughs) I have to say... You know, I'm not exactly admitting that I wrote that comment. (laughs) Okay. But we, you know, did read Lord of the Flies when I was in middle school, which was a long time ago. But even then, everybody was sort of seeing it in our limited way as commentary on sort of enforced ideas of masculinity. Mm-hmm. Toxic masculinity. Tos- toxic many masculinity, people say. Yes. right? And so, like, what happens if you sap that from it? Mm-hmm. Like, it's not useful anymore. Like, if you just sort of swap out characters on that shallow level without any, like, serious intentionality. But is this because they're doing it because they don't have any other ideas and they think this Or they're sell. doing it yeah. because there's been the, you know, various mm. scandals about who gets cast mm. and, you know. Mm-hmm. But. Yeah, I'm kind of of two minds about it. I think on one hand, it's still so rare to see a movie that's driven by women and girls talking with other women and girls. Right. Yeah. There are so many films where even when women and girls play major roles, they're interacting with male characters and the story is being driven by male yeah, characters all the time. Mm-hmm. There's still the Bechdel test. Yes, the Bechdel exactly. test. Exactly. So, so in that respect, mm-hmm. I do think even though it's not an especially original idea, it is a step forward. But the point that you made about who wrote the film, I mm-hmm. think, is the deeper issue here. Because if you don't be careful with some of these remakes and the swapping out of men for women, what you're going to end up doing is reproducing a system of tokenism that's not about real control and not about any kind kind of self-definition for the characters who are in the film and doesn't change the film industry in any way, right? It allows them to keep the underlying logic of what sells and what role women are allowed to play and what their place in the business is, right, as pawns that men move around, instead of reorganizing the film industry so that more women's voices are heard in the writer's room, in the executive's room, and on the screen. I think it's got to be part of a broader transformation for it to have some real substance. I mean, mean, we have to also mention that the novel that the movie is based on was 
was, of course, written by a man. Right. Ocean's Eight, different scenario, but not so different. I mean, they're literally going to take the same plot and, I assume, come up with something that's clever about a heist somewhere. It's just that it's an all-female cast with Mindy Kaling and uh, Sarah Paulson, I think, has one of the leads. If it works, of course, we know we're going to see many more of these. This will just stop any originality, to your point. You know, part of Alison Bechdel's thing inspires originality because what's out there now does not meet her test, which is how many times are women talking to each other in the film. And I do think, like, I appreciate Michael saying he's, of, you know, sort of a split mind about it because there is the sort of industrial, you know, aspect of who gets hired and who has these opportunities. But there is also the fact that it needs to be more just than, like, bodies. Films operate as a kind of social commentary. Mm -hmm. Before I move to my next story, let me remind people, if you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm here with Rachel Rubin and Michael Jeffries, our pop culture contributors. And we're talking about pop culture news you may have missed. I'm going to guess some people may have missed one part of the story I'm about to introduce, which is a transgender model who was fired And then they may have heard about the one who was hired as a Playboy playmate. Let me just put all the facts on the table so you guys can respond. The first one's name was Monroe Bergdorf, and she was hired by L'Oreal to be the first transgender model and then fired very shortly after they touted that we're champions of diversity. And here's our example because of a tweet that she wrote, a post that she wrote, right after Charlottesville and when she talked about the racism of white people, which she said was taken out of context and was very particular to the moment in time. She was very frustrated and angry and hurt about what happened in Charlottesville. That's Monroe Bergdorf for that. She got fired. And she's commenting now saying uh, firing her obviously said they're not champions of diversity. (laughs) The next one is a story is about Inez Rao, and she's French. And she just got hired as Playboy Playmate, and she's transgender. And let's just take a listen to a clip from an interview between her and NPR's Lakshmi Singh. I feel very lucky to be a model and to be to be the one who has been chosen for Playboy, because I feel like a magazine like Playboy is like putting a crown of femininity on my head. And for transgender to feel legit as a woman. You know, when I was young, and I had no one to look up to to make me feel good and worth being. So if I can be the one to make all transgender people feel worth being, worth loving, this is an amazing thing. All right. Respond. There's a lot to unpack. (laughs) Yeah, Um, I know. And I'll I'll take the the second one first from Rao. I mean, I think we should be uneasy by the notion that Playboy is the one that puts the crown of femininity on people's heads. It's a very dangerous logic of legitimacy when it comes to gender roles. And there is another sort of set of politics involved here, which is Playboy's own reframing of this choice to put Rao in the magazine. And they compared it to their choice to have African-American centerfolds Mm -hmm. before any other glamour magazines would in terms of some of the pushback they received from the public. So the magazine, at a time, frankly, when its relevance is dying down because it's being replaced by other pornographic medium and other sources of men's entertainment, or I should say erotic entertainment, Mm -hmm. it's a tactical move here to generate some attention, in particular with uh, the way that the the franchise is going to have to change without Hefner uh, Sr. as its head. And, And on the first point, on Bergdorf, this is a person who has made a number of really smart comments about 
why she was fired and what she was fired for. So the narrative, of course, is the tweet. And that's we understand that's the narrative that we're going to hear from most of the news sources. But she has spoken out repeatedly about racial violence and about whiteness and about racism on all kinds of platforms far beyond Twitter. I mean, talking to televised interviews, radio shows, etc. And she finds it very odd and very upsetting that she would be let go essentially for speaking her mind and analyzing racism when other models who do far more objectionable things, Mm. violence and other forms of misbehavior, have been kept on by the company. So she's been very alert and aware and analytic about her position and the reasons that she was let go beyond the tweet itself. Rachel? Yeah, and I have two things that I think are really worth pointing out. One is that as a model... We're at a point where I'm really, really happy she was hired. Like, she, you can be transgendered, but being publicly anti-racist mm-hmm. is much more dangerous. Yes. And that I think we just need to socially yeah. acknowledge that. Mm-hmm. We still have that sort of as the basis for, you know, our, our system. And then the other thing is that being hired as a model, and I would say being in Playboy 2, sort of literalizes the fact that these two transgender women are being commodified, Mm -hmm. right? And so when they're turned into a product, like the company thinks that they can control every aspect of her life now. And it is true. Like the things she said are wonderful and they're useful. It's not even like she said them when she was being photographed or something like that. But they're sort of in control now of every aspect of her life, or they thought so, right, that they had to be or else she's gone. So can we simplify and say this is a forward step or a backward step vis-a-vis either one of them? Because there's a lot of caveats you both put forward for us to think about. Yeah, it's, I think it's hard to simplify it. Mm-hmm. I, and, I, and I think part of it here is that as someone who doesn't identify as transgender, I can't comment on mm-hmm. the psychic and the psychological impact of seeing someone like that, even in a publication that I may object to, because I don't understand what that experience is like and the need for that sort of validation that Rao described. Visibility. That's, right. Mm-hmm. Validation and visibility. I don't want to just sort of talk over mm-hmm. that or step past that. Um, but on the other hand, I think we do a disservice if we don't talk about what the channels and paths to visibility and validation are. And if those are the only channels, right? Mm. If the only thing that we can look to to validate us is this particular form of commodification, as Rachel described, then that's a problem, regardless of how it feels, right? And regardless of the kind of self-esteem issues, if those are the only channels we have, that's an impoverished notion of what it means to be validated. Mm. I was just taken with a photograph that's been going around by librarians. I love librarians. (laughs) Anyway, but I'd love to get you all's take on it. So these group of librarians from New Zealand posted a picture of themselves, which is an exact copy of the photograph of the Kardashians, which has been bandied about because they're celebrating the 10th anniversary of keeping up with the Kardashians, if you can believe it. It looks exactly the same, except they're librarians, and it's called Keeping Up with the Librarians. And I wanted you to weigh in on the kind of commentary that they're making and that the people who, because it's it's huge now, that the people who've passed it on are making about the Kardashians, what we think about this over-the-top kind of crazy reality, quote-unquote, TV. What does it say to you? I just found it, it, it said to me that people are getting a little smarter about this. 
but I don't know if that's, I don't I'm know. right. I don't know if I'm right. All right. Okay. Well, I have a con- first of all, I have to yeah. start with a confession, which yes. is that like I just now realized that it's because both words end with I-A-N-S that they decided <laughs> to do it. Okay. But, um, you know, <laughs> at first I was like, no, I like libraries to be like refuges from celebrity culture. There's this assumption that we will all recognize a kind of sly commentary on how, you know, the spread of celebrity culture and that everybody is supposed to know the picture now. I mean, it's really not beyond the realm of possibility that we could have a reality TV show about librarians <laughs> at some point, the way things are going. Exactly. The E-Network might call these people up and put them on television before we know it. The Kardashians can't keep up with the librarians. <laughs> We're going to post it on the website for people who are frustrated listening to this saying, wait a minute, I want to see it. Finally, I wanted to talk to you about Fashion Police. That's a show that's also on e Joan Rivers, who died a few years ago, was the queen of that show for a long time. It was produced by her daughter. And after her death, that went through a few different iterations. But her daughter is now hosting the show with a few other folks. And they just announced they're canceling it. To my knowledge, it still was drawing. So I wondered if that says something about the kind of commentary that Joan and her daughter first introduced on the red carpet. And when a couple of years ago, some of the actresses said, stop asking me who I'm wearing. But that was started by Joan Rivers. Yeah, I think it, it might say something about that. It might also be a response to the way this kind of commentary happens now. And in some ways, what happens in social media in the moment crowdsourced commentary can supersede and and take place before we get the kind of analysis from television, even in live television. So if they're not going to change the format of the show to really engage that style of commentary on Instagram and Twitter and all the other places where it happens, it makes it difficult to keep up with that because they're competing with a bunch of other Rivers-type people who don't have their own platform on television but have their own platform on social media. So it doesn't mean that our obsession with celebrities is gone, though. It does not, or our (laughs) obsession with clothing. And I have to say, one thing I really did like about the show was the name of the show, because as somebody who has never really cared about dressing appropriately, as my students have sometimes told me, I like that the title literalizes that, like, there is a police that tells us what we have to wear and what it means and how much we're supposed to spend on it, right? And the fact that somebody's name is attached makes it more important. So I didn't like the de-literalizing of horror movies. (laughs) But this one you're okay with. (laughs) This one I'm okay with. Well, that's it for our roundup on this pop culture news. I'll be glad to have you all back. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you, Kelly. Michael Jeffries is an associate professor of American Studies at Wellesley College, and Rachel Rubin is a professor of American Studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Coming up, it's Halloween season, the time when haunted Boston comes alive at night, alive with scary stories of phantoms whose chilling, real exploits were the horror stories of their time. Two ghost tour guides share Boston's creepy history and how they tell it night after night. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Whatever happened to my Transylvania twist? It's now the match. It's now the monster match. The monster match. And it's a graveyard smash. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. Something strange. Who you gonna call? 
Boston is home to an endless array of tours detailing every part of the city's history. Tour guides tell the stories of our founding fathers, the harbor, their neighborhoods, and the creation of our country. But at night, some tours turn otherworldly. Ghost tours tell the murderous tales of the infamous and the unknown, whose spirits roam the streets of Boston. Here to tell us more, Megan Dutton, a tour guide with Haunted Boston. Welcome, Megan. Thank you. So glad to have you. And also with us, Tim Carr, a tour guide and assistant general manager for Ghosts and Gravestones Boston. Hello, Tim. Hi. Thank you for having me. So first, let me say, when I heard ghost tours, I had in mind the haunted house scenario where somebody's running through the mazes and screaming because creepy things are touching them. That is not what we are talking about, (laughs) just to be clear. (laughs) Not really. No. No. Okay. So when we talk about ghost tours, I'm going to get each of you to describe what we mean. Um, I'll start with you, Tim. So our tour, it's a hybrid tour between a walking and a trolley tour around the city. It takes about an hour and a half to an hour and 40 minutes. We take people around in our trolleys. We take them off our trolleys twice and into two of the oldest burying grounds in the country. We lock them inside. We tell them some spooky, scary stories about what's happened inside, what's happened to some of the people buried inside. Uh, We take them around other sections of the city, show them one of the most haunted hotels in the entire country, and the location that the Boston Strangler killed his last victim in. So some really gruesome, gory, meaty, murder, and macabre stories. We say that, you know, they're all historically true. We're like the freedom trail from hell. (laughs) Oh, that's a good one. (laughs) And it's funny to see people, when you say that to them, they're kind of like, oh, okay. (laughs) The light goes off in the head. (laughs) Megan, how would you describe the ghost tour? Yeah, we are. are telling stories about Boston's past and uh, some things that have been left behind. We spend most of our time in Boston Common, but we do go up to Beacon Hill, and then we end over inside the Omni Parker House Hotel, which is considered to be the most haunted building in Boston. Now, are all the tours always at night? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, for you. Ours are, yes, mm-hmm. generally for the public, yeah. Mm-hmm. We do do charter tours at random times whenever they want to go. If we have the ability, we'll, we'll do it. But our public tours are, are always at night, yeah. All right. So I want each of you to share one of your favorite stories that you tell. I mean, just a little bit off the top, um, how you would start and what you might say. Megan, I'll start with you. Well, one of my favorite ghost stories is actually sort of a simple ghost story, but it involves a burial that was discovered when they were digging for the the subway here in Boston in 1895. They're digging in Boylston Street, and they begin to find parts of bodies that have been left behind. And it was a forgotten-about mass burial of about a 1,000 people who died during the occupation in Boston. Half of them are British soldiers, and the other half, residents of Boston, who were unable to leave at the time. So when you're leaving Boylston on the train and you're going towards Arlington, you pass right through where that mass burial was. And as legend would have it, early in the morning, that very first train that goes through and late at night as the trains start to decrease in frequency, often the driver will see a red coat soldier standing on the tracks. Um, It's just a residual haunting, some energy that's been left behind by the presence of that grave that was there for about 120 years until it was removed and reburied on the far corner of Central Burial Ground. 
Wow. That's my guest, Megan Dutton of Haunted Boston. That allows me the chance to remind people that we're talking about real stories, Tim. So tell me one of your real uh, ghost stories. Absolutely. It's, <laughs> it's interesting that you bring that up because I ask people on my tour if they actually believe in ghosts. And for obvious reasons, a number of them raise their hands. <laughs> um, and then I confess to them that I don't necessarily believe in ghosts. What I do believe in is history. I'm a huge history nerd, so anything that can be proven to me, anything that can be researched and and what have you, is totally something that I believe in, and and that's the stories that I choose to tell on, on my tour. And the one that uh, one of the ones that I love to tell is about the Worthy Lake family. And uh, George Worthy Lake was the first uh, lighthouse keeper of the first lighthouse in this nation out on Little Brewster Island, 1716, I believe he went out there with his family. And I like telling the story because it kind of takes place out in Boston Harbor, but the story also takes place as they came into town. They did some errands. He collected his pay, and he brought his wife and his his youngest daughter, Ruth, uh, into the Boston property here. And on their way back, kind of seemingly out of nowhere, a, a heavy nor'easter just kind of blew through Boston Harbor. And three accomplished swimmers, George, his wife Anne, and uh, Ruth, all perished as the boat capsized and, and sank, and they drowned. And there's a number of different stories about the hauntings of that island and that lighthouse. The second... A uh, man that became the lighthouse keeper about a week and a half after that was found drowned on the edges of the shoreline as well in relatively calm waters. So a lot of people started to begin to talk about the curses and things of that uh, about the lighthouse. It was manned by the U.S. Coast Guard for a number of years, and it's it was one of the last actual lighthouses to be physically manned. And there were so many hauntings and things happening out there that the U.S. Coast Guard began to record them in their their logs and everything like that. And they say that they even gave them a nick what they saw out there a nickname of Ghost Watchmen. Mm. So you know you can actually go and see the records and check the records, and you'll see on their their logbooks GW that supposedly stands for Ghost Watchmen. Wow. Or. George Worthy Lake. And I, I love telling people that story because it's documented, you know, by the U.S. government. People have seen it. I actually had a man on my tour that was a 30-year veteran of the, of the U.S. Coast Guard, and he said that he was stationed in Boston for a number of years, and he actually spent a few days out on the island with a few other crew members after a heavy rainstorm, and he said that he had seen GW out there on the island. And I said, that's amazing. I'm going to put you in my tour you know, to tell people that not only is it documented by the U.S. government, but I've had somebody on my tour that has actually seen those pages and seen the GW written on there. And he said, no, I've actually seen the specter out in the lighthouse (laughs) trying to make its way up to the top of the lighthouse and failing every time. And so it's just, it's stuff like that, that, you know, whether I want to call myself a believer or not, the more and more I I get these stories and and this history down, you know, it's, it's, you can always believe in history and and history is teaching us that, that ghosts are real. Wow. That's my guest, Tim Carr of Ghosts and Gravestones, Boston. Now, both of you are actors, which means that the people who attend attend the tours, can get the full flavor where you're all calm in the studio here with me. But if it's at night and you're, you know, either inhabiting some of the characters you talk about or telling those tales in a way that only an actor can, that must be pretty exciting, Megan. 
I hope so. I think I don't usually tell people that I'm an actor at the beginning of the tour, but they by the end they say, "What's your background again?" And it's clear that it, yes, it comes from theater. I don't actually try to inhabit any of the characters specifically. I'm I'm not role playing while I'm on the tour, but of course, as you're um, imagining some of these experiences, and you do sort of get into that mindset. Sure. I'm curious to know who's drawn to these tours, who who are most likely to end up in front of you at night in a spooky setting. You know, really everyone. We get families. We get a lot of people who are here for conferences. They can't go out and see Boston during the day and they need some tourism at night. So there really isn't a type of person that comes on ghost tours, which was a bit surprising to me. I was a little worried that I wasn't going to be, you know, goth enough or something for some of my <laughs> um, clients. But no, it's it's really everyone. So how has your acting background informed your performance when you're doing a ghost tour or leading a ghost tour? Tim? Um, so at Ghosts and Gravestones, our actors do play characters, mm-hmm. characters that they've created from the bottom on up. And um, when I'm auditioning people or I'm explaining this job to people, I tell them that it's the greatest performance piece I've ever been a part of because, yes, there's a script of stories. Yes, there's bullet points in those stories, dates and facts and stuff like that. But how you get from those facts and those dates is totally up to you. So it's totally the creative realm is, is is never ending and you get that instant gratification of being you know when you're on a stage or mm. in film you're not necessarily in film you're definitely not able to see the audience's reaction and when you're on stage you know the lights and depending on where you are you can only see so many people's mm. reaction but here on the trolley within your group you're right in their face you know you can see the instant things that you know when you make them laugh you get that instant gratification or when you make them scared to see that smile drop off their face is just there's nothing like live theater and and this is the the epitome of that and I will sometimes have people on my tours take on the characters that I'm describing oh. as well. So as I'm telling the story, I'm like, okay, you're now the fellow who is finding this uh, parts of cadavers and this wall here and and see their reaction. And I think it's a lot of fun. I'm Callie Crossley, and you are listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guests are Megan Dutton, you just heard her, of Haunted Boston, and Tim Carr of Ghosts and Gravestones Boston. We're getting a behind-the-scenes look at ghost tours. Now, I have to say, any kind of stuff like this just scares me out of my mind. And the fact that it's true really would upset me. So I would not be on a ghost <laughs> tour. I'm, I'm scared by all of that. However, what we know now, looking at the numbers of people who are going to horror films and are seeking out this kind of paranormal information, there is a great amount of interest in this genre. So I'm imagining that on your tours now, you're seeing an increase. Is This, of course, is your season. It's Halloween. Mm. But talk to me about all year round. Uh, what happens, Megan? Is is it Halloween and, and all the time now because there's such wide interest? Yeah. I, well, I would say summer is also very busy. There is a wide interest. People are really interested in the afterlife, about what happens to us, and about history. And, of course, when you're touching on ghost stories of Boston, you have to be talking about the people who lived here before us, who occupied the same spaces that we're currently occupying, truthfully. And I think people really like to delve into that no matter the time of year. I will say, though, that once we get to the fall and it actually is dark at the beginning of the tour, unfortunately, it's not always in the summer, mm-hmm. that definitely increases the feelings of, of wanting to get out to a ghost tour. 
Same thing for you, Tim. Yeah, I would agree. Um, you know, for obvious reasons, Ghosts and Gravestones runs basically from March in, until November. For obvious reasons, if there's a snowstorm or something like that, we can't necessarily <laughs> yeah, get around. I would around hope not. <laughs> and but yeah, I would say it's pretty much once the school once school gets out, you'll see an influx of people, and it's the same kind of people: everybody, families, and things like that. And then there's just a different feel once you arrive to the beginning of your tour, and the sun has gone down. You know, it's in the fall time. There's just a, that that feel of like. This is a totally different animal than than what the summer season was like. But we stretch it for quite a long time this season. I'm imagining that people come to Boston for a tour like this and they think they know one ghost story, and that's the Salem Witch Trials, right? Mm -hmm. And then they must be surprised when you have all of these other very specific stories, about again, about real people and real circumstances, which you may believe have resulted in people not at rest, mm-hmm. walking around, uh, roaming the streets. So I'm interested in that. Do you have to spend a lot of time sort of uh, letting people know, hey, there's, it's not just a Salem Witch Trial. In fact, that's just one little piece of what we're talking about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's interesting how people bring that information with them. And in some places, you'll hear some crossover of those same stories, some of the same characters or people, I should say, mm-hmm. in those same stories. But then there's other times where people will light up when you're telling a story, you know, a macabre story about something that happened in the old Granary Burying Ground, which has, you know, some of the biggest names buried there. Or, you know, you talk about the Boston Strangler and things like that, and people will be like, oh, yeah, that's yeah. that happened here, too. Right? Mm-hmm. You know, and so it's I think when you get into it, people will kind of start to know more or remember more mm-hmm. that they've heard of certain things like that than they realize. I think people are surprised, too, that Boston really ties very well into the Salem witch hysteria. Mm. There was a woman accused of witchcraft and hanged on the common just four years before the Salem witch hysteria, which we talk a lot about her on the tour. Mm. And uh, the theologian who gave credibility to her case and really got everyone rallied around to believe that she was, in fact, a witch is that same theologian, Cotton Mather, who then gives credibility to the witch hysteria in Salem. So it, the unfortunately, the ball for the witch hysteria got rolling right here in Boston. Wow. Mm-hmm. Now, Megan, Tim said he wasn't really into a ghost thing. He was more history. Were you ever the kid that waited for the ghost story? I loved ghost stories, but I was kind of a morbid child. I really, really <laughs> love cemeteries. I love being in cemeteries. And so if I could have known as a child that I was going to be spending time walking around cemeteries talking about people who were buried in them, oh, my goodness, I'd be on cloud nine knowing that that was part of my future life. Well, you're not alone. We have an upcoming conversation with a woman who's written a book about cemeteries because not only has there been great interest in horror and the paranormal and the occult and all of that, uh, there's a lot of interest now for tourists in cemeteries. Mm-hmm. So which ought to make your jobs a little easier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So now that you've been doing this, even though you weren't a ghost person, you yeah. are a history person. Is there one particular ghost story that stands out for you uh, that if you had heard as a kid, maybe really would have changed your mind about all of this? Um I always needed proof. There always had to be something proof. <laughs> oh, you're one of those. <laughs> I'm one of those, yeah. I don't, my parents will attest to that. that they had to yeah. Tell me multiple times to do something. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I would say the, there's another story within the North End, kind of where we start our tour, about Peter Rugg. And that, again, is a story 
about a father and a young daughter as well that ended up getting lost on their way back to Boston. And, you know, they they were never seen again, basically. Mm. And that's kind of where you think the story ends. But it doesn't because generation after generation of North Enders have documents and journal entries about seeing these specters around their their neighborhood just before a huge storm just all of a sudden hits and, and what have you. And I just feel like stuff like that would have would have really gotten me. I mean, I you know I love stories in the dark. You know, stuff mm. like that. We we kick around that old book. We all love those scary those, stories yeah, to tell in the scary dark. Scary stories to tell in the <laughs> yeah. dark. Yeah. Yeah. No, and, I um, would not be there with you, but. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, here's the challenge. Now, you mentioned that uh, there's all kinds of folks in the summer and now, of course, on your tours. I assume that's a lot of young people. Young people, I don't need to tell you, are all fascinated by what's on their personal screens. Mm -hmm. So, what can draw them to a situation that this is a storytelling the old-fashioned way, where you've got to be there in person, um, and you have to engage. I mean, they, they, they get the engagement part. They know about the interactivity. But usually through a distant kind of mechanization or technology. How have you seen young people respond, uh, given that that's what's happening with them? I think they're definitely able to engage with live storytelling still, definitely. I will say occasionally I have someone coming with their smartphone and a little ghost finder, you know. Oh, and no. There There's are an app for that? For that. Oh, yes. There's an app for that. Um, it's, I actually was a little bit more popular a couple years ago. I'm seeing it a little bit less. Okay. Um, but, yeah, there were people who were trying to engage technologically with the tour as well. But now I'm, you know, getting eyes on me. They're, they're listening. They're reacting. They're asking questions as we're walking from stop to stop. And then they're sharing some of their own experiences with me as well, which is really nice. Same thing for you, Tim? Yeah, I would say it's about the same thing. There's always, you know, like one or two that you're just trying to get to and, and you can see that at any free moment they're they're on their phone. But they would probably be doing that regardless of the setting that they were in because they're, there's something that they need to stay attached to, which which is fine. But for the most part, yeah, everybody is still just just pretty engaging. And if they're going to like your tour anyways, they're going to like it. You know, screen or so, no screen. Yeah, yeah. screen or no screen. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I'll also say I encourage people to take photos on the tour. Absolutely. Because that's, uh, you can find a lot of interesting things in photographic images after the fact. Oh, I bet. I noted that two Massachusetts sites were named most haunted in the United States, wondering if either of these you all had heard of. One, Stone's Public House in Ashland and the Witch House, I guess, um, in Salem. So I thought that was interesting. Anybody? Y'all heard of these? Haunted? I've certainly been in the Witch House. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. It's a great old building. It's one of the oldest structures in Massachusetts. But um, I didn't know anything about the hauntings there. Yeah. yeah. This is by Google Maps. They just went around and named yeah. all the haunted places. I had never heard of the one in Ashland. but the, Yeah, the, the Stones the Public House. House in Ashland and the town of Salem, two of the 31, 31 most haunted places. Stones Public House is a tavern and gastropub now. So says this article from Mass Live, but it used to be known as the Railroad House. And I guess... Dastardly things or creepy I can things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> creepy things happen there. Do you change your stories often? I would say I've found some stories that I love, but occasionally I will change it. There's definitely been an evolution since the beginning of my tour to now. And sometimes I will, yeah, sometimes I can get an idea whether people are more interested in history or more interested in ghosts <laughs> right at the beginning, and I can, you know, change accordingly. 
And also in the general, I, don't, I know you must have like, I don't know, 15 stories or so that you may rotate. Do you ever change those stories, those basic stories, add to them or take ones away that don't seem to resonate anymore? If I have found research mm-hmm. um, and I do research and I can augment the story or I learn that something I've been saying is actually not accurate or I can't find enough evidence for it, I'll change it. Mm-hmm. But the only story that I've sort of retired is the Boston Strangler. Mm. I used to tell that story every night, but I told it back when there was um, a little bit more curiosity, a little bit more mystery as to whether who the Boston Strangler was. And a few years ago, there was that DNA evidence and... And so it, I can't end at the end, and we don't really know if yeah. he's still around. <laughs> <laughs> no. See, I wonder if pop culture influences you. For example, now I would imagine people would be very interested in women ghosts, you know, mm-hmm. because we have the whole Wonder Woman effect going and all the rest. So I didn't mm-hmm. I didn't know if, if you sorted stories according to yeah. what may be popular in the moment. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I would say that I adapt my tour the same way that Megan does, depending on what the group, the feel of the group and things like that. But we do have... We talk about one of the first angels of death nurses, uh, Jane Topin, and we kind of get into that by some guides will poll their their audience and say, who's your favorite serial killer? So, or, you know, something like that. <laughs> and um, they'll say Albert DeSalvo or they'll say, you know, Ed Gein or something like that or Theodore Bundy. And they were very rarely ever name a female serial mm. killer. And mm. so then we tell a story about Jane Topin, who actually is. A lot of people think that she may have murdered a lot more, but she's confessed to about 31 murders of patients of hers. And, you know, she's kind of underrated, but a lot of us use it for the woman's movement and breaking through the glass ceiling and everything like that. So, <laughs> In a ghostly way. <laughs> In a ghostly so, way, Is she yeah. still wandering around yeah. the, the hospital beds or her whatever? Is, she her, pop up everywhere? Her is more about just kind of what she had done. To, mm-hmm. Her is more of a little bit more of a murder story and macabre story. And when I add so. another woman's story, I like to talk about Mary Dyer, mm. the, the first female martyr for religious rights in the New World. And I think she's pretty special. And whether or not she's still lurking around, I don't know. Um, there is a a spirit on the common, we believe, could be her, could be someone else. But um, her story is great regardless. And But what unfortunately what happened to her, she was hanged unjustly on the common. And, well, but so going important. on on the common. Oh, there was. <laughs> yes, yeah. So those are good some, some good women's stories. Well, I think you probably won't run out because not only do we have just a rich history here, but there's so much academia and with folks uncovering history or more details about what we thought we knew or what we didn't know. So I'm going to guess that you'll be adding to um, your repertoire (laughs) for for time to come. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I thank you both for joining me. Thank, Thank you, you for having us. It's so exciting. I won't be joining you because I'm too scared, but I think <laughs> I actually think it would be very, very interesting. And um, I know a lot of people who will be very interested in what you do. Megan Dutton is a tour guide with Haunted Boston, and Tim Carr is a tour guide and assistant general manager for Ghosts and Gravestones Boston. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at news.wgbh.org slash UTR. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. 
Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at Facebook.com slash Under the Radar WGBH. Our engineer is Doug Sugarts. Andrea Swahi is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH. In this town we call home, everyone hail to the ball.